Dr. Ailey Diner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, same. We've actually uh, already had a bit of an informal discussion at one point. I saw your account on Twitter and I was like, hey, can we talk <laughs> just <laughs> randomly? Hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I love getting messages like that because it gives me an excuse to talk about what I'm passionate about. And um, most of the time people are happy to listen. So, yeah, <laughs> you gave yeah, me a captive it's, audience. Um, it is very interesting um, because we are kind of in the same field. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've gone from the software world to marketing, um, but we we're, we're, we take it from different angles, you know. So mm -hmm. I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about that. So let's just tell people a little bit about who you are. Uh, you are a former scientist turned science marketer. That's mm -hmm. unique, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's becoming more common as as I think a lot of scientists are looking for or, or getting kind of sick of being at the bench or tired of the lifestyle that scientific research kind of brings. So they're looking for alternative careers or things they can do with their science background. Um, so yeah, science science marketing is is kind of up there. And I would say I would kind of pull the lens back a little bit and just say science communication as a whole. Um, I think a lot of scientists are kind of moving, moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the reason why I focused heavily on science marketer or science marketing is only because that part is quite new. Science communication, mm -hmm. I think, is gaining ground. I think um, scientists are still hesitant to consider marketing. Do you find that it's a bit of a dirty word in the science field? It definitely is. I, I think marketing, like all of a sudden turns, it, it turns people's stomach maybe a little bit to hear that term. Uh, and then if you really want to turn their stomach, you mentioned branding and they, uh, people run, people run for the hills, especially scientists. Um, I like to like, you know, I think, I think you can really distill like good marketing and, and good branding down to storytelling. And that's, that's kind of like what I like to use as, as an alternative. It really is just kind of like trying to tell a story about your science, which you know, sometimes scientists will still react to, but I, I think it is a little less dramatic than, you know, saying marketing or branding. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so before we get into really the, the full depth of what marketing is and what you do, I want to mm -hmm. kind of tell people what your background is. You are, you're, you have a PhD. Uh, so tell yep. me a little bit about what you used to do as a scientist. Yeah, sure. I, I always, I grew up around science. Uh, my dad was a scientist. He worked at, he worked at DuPont for forever. Um, so I was always like really, he was always happy to talk about science and I was always happy to listen. And so I, I grew up around science and um, it was kind of, it's kind of the family business almost in a way. And so I went to college and, uh, you know, I did a little exploring and, um, and was still just kind of found, still found science really, really cool. And so eventually I found my way into a lab, a molecular biology lab, and, um, you know, fell in love with being at the bench and running experiments. And so that brought me to, to graduate school um, where I found microbiology. And, and so I studied, um, I studied E. coli as a graduate student, and I, I studied a cool, uh, a cool system that bacteria use to sort of fight each other in their little niche environments. Um, so it's, it was, it was a really, it was a really cool topic to study. Um, 
And, uh, and then, you know, as you do in academia, I went on to do a postdoc and, and, uh, and uh, I did, a, I did a postdoc in immunology for a little bit and then in synthetic biology for a little bit. So I really, I really bounced around. I could never, I could never really focus in science. It was just like so much cool stuff. And um, I just wanted to do it all. <laughs> um, and in research, in academic research, especially, you really have to, you really do have to kind of like focus, find a niche and just like stay in it. I think, I think there are some exceptions to that. People can kind of like venture outside their niche or try different things. But, um, you know, to, I think to have a successful academic career, the, a lot of people just really focus in on a niche and I could, I could never do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, At what point did you actually decide I'm done? I'm just done. Yeah, man, I can't, I can't whittle it down to one moment. It was probably a series of, of moments over my, you know, 10 years in research, but yeah, I, I always really went pretty like hard into my work. I think, um, you know, working 12 hour days and, uh, seven days a week and I, I always was really engrossed in my research and I think it and at the beginning I just loved it I loved it so much and I I like didn't want to do anything else aside from just be in lab and run experiments and I think that lifestyle just kind of caught up with me I think as with a lot of academics I just got burnt out um, and at the same time I started to you know think about wanting a family and, um, and having kids and those other things started to kind of occupy more space in my life. And I just, I, I couldn't see how, you know, being in lab 12 hours a day, seven days a week could fit into that lifestyle. And so ultimately I, I kind of chose to, to look for, for something else. Yeah. Okay. And what, um, was it was it the lifestyle of marketing that you you wanted? Was it the job itself? What was it about marketing specifically that really made you lean into that? Yeah, that's a great question. I I I always liked, you know, I I don't think I'd ever like heard of marketing when I was in academic science. You know, I think your interaction with marketing is like so minimal. You get you get kind of like pushy sales reps who like stop by the lab and they're like, Hey, want to try this new like DNA extraction kit? And I'm like, no, no, I really don't. Um, and so I was always like, I, like most academics just thought like sales and marketing was like stuff I didn't have to pay attention to, um, or an annoyance. So I, I always really liked communicating about science. Um, and I liked giving presentations about science. Um, I liked writing papers. I liked, um, uh, yeah, I liked I liked all of that kind of communication stuff. And so I started, you know, I started blogging a little bit. I started writing articles for like kind of a broader audience, an audience, you know, outside of hardcore science, science and scientists. Um, and I found I really enjoyed it. And so I looked, I started looking for, as I kind of accepted that, you know, I was going to leave science, I was going to leave research. Um, I started just kind of exploring, talking to old colleagues, talking to people who did science communication um, and uh, just kind of picking their brain about like like what their day to day life is like, what they like about their job, what they hate about their job. Um, and so ultimately, I, I kind of, uh, you know, 
got the feeling that communication or a career in communication was was for me. Um, and so I took a job as uh, initially as as a medical writer, which is basically it's it's code for <laughs> it's code for marketing in the pharmaceutical uh, industry, really. So what I did was I put you know PowerPoint uh, slides together for for doctors to go out and market drugs or raise awareness about specific diseases to their other, you know, to their colleagues or to um, various audiences. Um, and so that was sort of my first step out of the lab um, into, into a marketing role. And it, it really relied pretty heavily on the skills that I had like built as, as a scientist, um, you know, presenting about research, um, talking about certain diseases. Um, and so I used, I used those skills pretty heavily in that first medical writing job. Yeah. Right. And now you're, you're full on marketing essentially. Yeah. And yeah. So then I, then I kind of, um, you know, what I learned about medical writing is medical writing falls into this class of marketing, which is called outbound marketing where, you know, someone goes out and like, you know, takes a megaphone and screams about screams their message to people. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, you know, one form of marketing you can think about billboards or, you know, that that's, that's sort of your classic example of outbound marketing. Um, I sort of moved into the more like what's now called inbound marketing where you can kind of attract, attract your audience, um, attract people to your website or, you know, a piece of content that you wrote. Um, that's sort of the marketing that I've, I moved, I moved into, um, and, and what I do now at my, uh, at my, as a, you know, freelance marketer. Now I'm in Canada. Whereabouts are you in the U S again? I'm in San Diego, San Diego, California. Okay. Yeah. yeah because one of the things I've noticed is a major, I mean, there's always been a, a major cultural difference in terms of, you know, um, people getting into industries earlier and Americans are always first at everything pretty much. Um, <laughs> but especially science communication, I find it's much more popular in the United States. It's growing in Canada, but I think in Canada, they're still at the stage of communication. They're not at the stage of things like marketing, bringing an audience to them, um, mm -hmm. or using SEO or things like that. Uh, so do you find that you have, I don't know if your, your clients are international. So let me ask you that question first. Are most of your clients American as well? Yeah, most of my clients are are American. Um, when I, before I went out on my own, um, I did work with, with a few clients that are kind of international. I would say their biggest markets are in the U S but they, they sell, you know, all over the world. They're big kind of global brands, um, that I think most scientists might, might recognize. Yeah. Okay. Because one of the arguments I hear, especially internationally, is that science shouldn't be sold. It shouldn't be marketed. It should be discovered. What would be your, your argument, um, either for or against that? Yeah, I think, um, I think regardless of what you do as a career, you're, you're trying to persuade someone to your way of thinking. Um, and I think really like what, what marketing tries to do is, is persuade. So if I'm, I'm a scientist and I'm going out and talking about my research, um, I'm trying to, I'm presenting data, I'm using data to ultimately persuade my audience to believe what I've come to believe, 
um, what I've found studying and running experiments on this, you know, one topic. So I would say, you know, scientists are, uh, are ultimately trying to persuade. And I think, you know, storytelling and marketing is just, it's, it's another version of that. It's, it's a, it's probably maybe a more direct version of doing that than like a scientist giving a presentation or writing a paper, but um, it's still, it's still ultimately working towards the same goal. Yeah. And so you, um, your business is called Word Lab, W-E-R-D, Word. It's a very kind of cool, hip um, <laughs> approach to naming a business. I like it. Um, you. you. know, you've got to be fun at, at the same time. It's one thing to, to do marketing and, and writing, and, and especially in your field, because you're doing a lot of what you do, I find, probably plays to your strengths. Uh, you do mm. a lot of writing, a lot of writing, a lot of blogging, a lot of uh, data, uh, SEO, things like that. Is that because, you know, um, that's something you find that you're very good at and that you enjoy doing? Yeah. And just, just a note on the name, actually, I, I um, word lab is, is the first, the, the, each letter in, in a word is the first letter of each member of my family. So Wiley, who's my son, is the W. Ella is my daughter, is the E, and then R. Rachel is my my wife, and then D for Diner. So just a just a <laughs> nice little aside there. Um, That's really cute. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, sorry, I forgot your original question. Well, I, I was just curious because you know marketers tend to play through their strengths, like good marketers, mm -hmm. and so for you it seems to be writing. And data and SEO. And mm -hmm. I was just curious if that was something that you did for a competitive edge or if it's something that you just feel really good at, at doing yeah. and that you enjoy it. Yeah. So the writing, the writing, I just, I just enjoy. Um, and I like, you know, I, I, I talked about my kind of uh, inability to focus on one research topic and, and I find writing, uh, you know, for all of these different brands and all of these different science companies allows me to kind of like jump around to different topics and kind of dive into, you know, a scientific area that maybe I'm not as familiar with or that I've always been curious about. Um, and it allows me to do it in like shorter timeframes than scientific research operates on. Um, so that, that is a real, a real passion of mine. And then I think the SEO, the SEO part of it, um, you know, which for anyone who doesn't know is, is search, stands for search engine optimization. Um, SEO allows me to uh, kind of dig into some more of that data. I think you kind of touched on that. Um, yeah, it allows me to to look at data, be analytical, which is one of the things I kind of miss about, uh, you know, not being a, a scientist anymore. Um, and there's a lot of tools out there that you can use, a lot of tools and techniques and, and a lot of, you know, just people writing about it. So it does, it does allow you to kind of take that, take that kind of analytical mind that I used as a scientist and apply it to something else. Um, yeah. Okay. So if one of your clients asked you to create a video, would you do it? Or would you just say, you know what, it's not my forte? <laughs> I, I would. Yeah. I'm the first to admit like when I'm not good at, <laughs> at something, I, I have a, I have a big problem, like faking it, uh, faking like I'm an expert in something. So um, yeah, it, video is something that I've always been really like, like interested in, but um, I'm, I've been intimidated by. Um, so I, I, um, I would love to learn video. But if someone came to me and asked me for a video, I would say, mm, I'm not I'm not your guy. Uh, but 
I can help you find someone who could, who could, you know, do, do video or like podcasting, for instance, you know, there's, there are a couple of people I know in the life science industry who, who, you know, specialize in helping brands start up podcasts. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, you know, the person I'm thinking of has found their niche. It's something that plays to their, their strengths. Um, but yeah, I have, I have my own specialty and I, I try to stay in my lane, but, um, you know, maybe in the future I'll, I'll learn how to do video. That would be, that would be cool. I have to say as a podcaster, trust me, this is not for everyone. <laughs> it's, it's not easy at all. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, um, who are your main clients? Are they uh, organization? Are they businesses? Are they individuals or is it a mix? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. I mean, most of the, you know, being out on my own for the past month, I've kind of targeted the, the startup area. Um, uh, cause I think, you know, they, they have pretty limited budgets and they work on like a fast timeline and I'm kind of like right in their wheelhouse in terms of like price and, um, you know, how quickly I can get things done. Um, I also just like working with startups. I think they're like, they're pretty, you know, informal and, and maybe a little more fun than like the bigger companies who like have to stick to their brand and stick to their messaging. Um, they're kind of like figuring it out as they, as they go. And, you know, owning my own business, I can kind of relate to that. Um, so I like, I like working with startups, but, um, I, I've worked with, I, I still kind of work with, with some bigger brands. Just, I, I have some contacts there. Um, and, and they've, you know, they know, they know me personally. And so I, I have those connections and I've, I've used them as a, as a freelancer now. Um, I'm trying to think, yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, I'm still trying to get, uh, build up a client base. And so I'm, I'm really open to anything, you know, I think academia is something that, you know, I, I came up in. And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot that could be done in, in the academic, uh, market to use that, that dirty word. Um, I, I think, I think academics especially could really benefit from a little, a little bit of marketing training themselves. Um, a little bit of SEO, a little bit of, you know, just, I, I think really the messaging, I think academia, academia could really do with like, being able to distill everything that, you know, a researcher or a scientist does down to like a core message. I think they could really benefit from that. Yeah. Let's talk about messaging for a minute here. I do also want to talk to, you know, about um, SEO, but I really, I think you, mm -hmm. you opened a can of worms here that I, I actually want to pursue, which is cool. messaging, which is that I find academia is getting better at communicating within. Mm -hmm. um, I think that scientists are getting better at explaining to each uh, things to each other. I find that there's a lot of room to be um, to improve in communicating with the public. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that you've done in marketing? Have you created campaigns to communicate science to the public, or has it mostly been business to business? Yeah, it's it's mostly business to business, but. Um... I personally like uh, communicating to like kind of a non-expert audience. Um, it's there's a lot more kind of creativity there, um, you know, figuring out, you know, cute metaphors to use or, um, you know, just kind of de-jargonize things and, and put it in terms that, you know, a non-expert audience can can understand. Um, and I think some brands actually are are interested in that as well, um, you know, just as more of a 
they may not be their direct audience, but more of an act of kind of good faith and kind of showing that they're they're interested in the broader population, not just people who will buy things. Um, so I think that's it, you know it's part marketing tactic, but but part you know I think you know good for good sake. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Right. Can yeah. you think of an organization? Because I was thinking the other day, and I can't come up with any ideas. The only person I can think of is, uh, what's his name? The magician, Randy. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, Rand, oh, no, the amazing Randy, who became a, he became a, um, a skeptic. So somebody who would go <clears> on stage and take like a uh, hundred sleeping pills created by homeopathic company and, and talk about, you know, kind of wow. the woo science. Um, I'll post a link, but it's the, he used to be a, a magician, the amazing Randy. He recently hmm. passed away. There's a documentary on him on, on Netflix. But essentially what I'm looking to find out is whether or not there's a either a marketing company or an organization whose mission is to tackle misinformation uh, mm. in science. Because I think that's one of the key things in SciComm uh, science communication uh, or science marketing that hasn't really been hit properly yet like anti-vax propaganda is yeah. well funded well funded well marketed mm -hmm. uh and you know consumers aren't stupid it's not that's not why they don't believe in vaccines it's because they're being marketed to yeah. do you find that is there a science equivalent to that not that i found you know i think i think that's an uphill battle for a lot of brands you know and i'm thinking about you know i'm thinking about GMOs, for instance, you know, there's been a lot of misinformation about about GMOs and that that ultimately that's hurt a lot of industries. I think about like the agriculture industry. Um, uh, yeah, agriculture industry, a lot of other industries. Um, I think uh, I think it does really come down to marketing. And as as you did point out, you know, uh, and the anti-vax movement, the anti-GMO movement has has some great storytellers. Um, and I think there's, uh, you know, they can they can tell kind of these anecdotal stories um, where, you know, families have been injured by having a vaccine. And that that really connects to people's fears, um, fears about what might happen to their own family members or their own children. Um, and there just hasn't been, you know, robust storytelling in the uh in the, that brands have put out there to combat that. And so the absence of that, I think has really led to the, the spread of the anti-vax and the anti-GMO movement message, um, much to the detriment of, of these companies, unfortunately. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a really great, great point is that the lack of storytelling, because mm -hmm. we get a lot of people who can actually simplify things. They can easily, they create really cool infographics about how vaccines work, what they, what goes into them, why you should wear a mask, but we don't have storytelling. I mean, yeah. I love a good story, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Me, me too. And it really, yeah, it really connects. I think there's something just innate about humans that, that kind of the story, like, it just kind of activates your brain a little bit. Um, and so I think, I think just, just more of that is, is, is needed um, in the science community. The problem is it's, and, and this was true for me as well, stories are hard. Um, you know, I was given that advice a lot as a graduate student, you know, when you go out and you give a presentation about your science, tell a story. And it's like such an easy throwaway line, but it's like, well, I don't, how do you do that? I don't know what goes into a story. I, I'm a scientist. Uh, I didn't, 
take literature classes or I didn't like, no one ever laid this out for me. Um, and so it was, it was really hard to learn. And I, I'll plug a book that really changed my view of that. Um, it's a book called Houston, We Have a Narrative um, by a former scientist. His name is Randy Olson. He was, uh, he was a kind of tenured professor um, for a long time, I think, in, in New Hampshire. And he left his tenured position to become a filmmaker actually um really he's got a really cool story um and you know he went so he ended up going to film school after he left science and in film school he kind of learned the basics of, of storytelling and he's taken that now and distilled it down to like a very simple kind of like storytelling framework um which he lays out in houston we have a narrative um and it's just, for me, it was really that aha moment. It's like, okay, here's this like structure that I can kind of follow and think about it, refine and work on um, to, to tell a story, essentially. Yeah. That's, um, I'm definitely going to pick up that book. Thank you for that. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we've had a lot of good science movies, you know, that we've had like some cool films, you know, in that, that kind of explained, uh, you know, some parts of science, but I think you're right. I think storytelling is a big one that, uh, that we haven't considered. I'm still sitting on that topic only because it's, it's, uh, it's a very fascinating insight. How do you these days, now that you have all this information, now that you've read that book and you've had your <laughs> aha moment, how do you come up with a story now? Yeah, I, um, I like to I like to follow the framework in in that book um, and and I can like lay out the basics of it uh, just for your listeners. It, it's kind of this structure where it's this and there's like an and so he he has this very nice he's named this this ABT structure for storytelling and it stands for and uh, but and therefore so you kind of to pull back on the framework a little bit it's like you introduce some facts that your audience is kind of like familiar with or knows something about. Then you introduce this, there's this but statement. So, but then you introduce kind of a contradiction to those, to those facts. Um, and then you say, therefore, okay, now that we have this contradiction, therefore, here's something that you need to do or an action that you need to take or um, how to kind of proceed in your daily life. And I think that sort of structure, that structure can be applied to like, you know, you could fit that into a sentence. So you could kind of tell a story with a sentence, but it can also that same sort of structure can be applied to like a longer form content, like, um, uh, like, you know, a blog or a white paper or an ebook or something, something of that nature. Um, so I really like to think about that when I'm doing, uh, when I'm doing, you know, messaging or branding work or, or just thinking about writing, writing a blog, I think about that, like, okay, do I have, I've introduced the facts. Do I have a but there? Um, do I have a, you know, kind of conclusion, like how to proceed, um, a kind of therefore statement? And so I really look for those elements when I'm writing. Um, sometimes it's it's very conscious. Um, I think you have to be kind of conscious of that when you're doing like short form content or thinking about messaging. Um, but in the longer form content, it's it's more of a like kind of subconscious uh, thought about that that structure um and then i'll kind of review and kind of like make sure i have the but and the the therefore uh kind of in there uh, yeah and i'm sure that you also review it to just to make sure that it's um 
that it's a good read, right? I mean, a lot of people, they'll do things, they'll, they'll optimize for keywords and like mm-hmm. they'll do proper formats and, 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 but they don't make it enjoyable as a read. No, that's, that's a really unfortunate thing um, that I think is starting to change in, especially in the SEO world, you know, SEO uh, used to be very much like, like Google would look at content as like almost like an accountant where it's like, okay, someone how how many times can you mention you know like single cell genomics in here and whoever mentions it the most we're going to serve them as number one um google has really taken into account you know what people enjoy now so things that are engaging for users things that are um are you know someone who scrolls down to the bottom of an article you know google values that information and and the more signals you can uh that Google can look at that says, you know, someone's, someone's engaging with this content, someone's reading it, spending more time on this page, you know, the better. Uh, and um, Google uses that information to ultimately inform its, its rankings of certain content. Yeah. So let's actually dig into SEO because that's something that, again, is very, very, and I'm sure you would agree, underutilized in science. It's the optimization for search engines. So meaning that you're easy to find. So if you're, you're a science communicator or if you have a project on outer space and you want people to find it, you've got to optimize it so that, you know, people can search for you by typing cool stuff about outer space in Google or (laughs) how do I find Pluto or is Pluto still a planet or whatever you want, you want your website to be on the first few pages of Google, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, just when I first started experimenting with SEO, I, I like built my own blog and that was kind of my, like, that was my training ground for SEO. Um, and it's incredible, you know, that number one spot on Google's on the first page of like Google search results is like, it's, it's like magic for, for me, that was like a big aha moment because I, I started this blog and I was doing writing and, you know, as the months kind of crept by, I started to like get show up in, in number one positions, number two positions and people, you know, people started reaching out because people would click through to the the blog, they would read the article and I have a little contact form there and they'd they'd send me a message. And as like the messages started to pour in, I was like, that was another aha moment for me. I was like, wow, these positions are like really valuable. You know, people, people make having that number one position makes people assume that you are an expert, you are a leader in the space. Um, you know, sometimes like we, we talked about with the anti-vax movement, you know, they're they're spreading, you know, disinformation or, or misinformation, um, unfortunately. But, you know, if you if you are an expert in the space, you want that number one spot, because not only are people going to assume that you're an expert, you know, if you can deliver on that expertise, you're you're in you're in a good spot. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, imagine yeah. if we concentrated so hard on on being in the top 10 pages for things like our vaccines safe. I think that'd be awesome. It would be like, yeah, we won, you know, but it is a, it's going to be a constant struggle. And I think a lot of it is going to come down to funding money. Um, mm-hmm. I think we I think people when I speak to, you know, potential clients, and they get so discouraged because they learn that their competitors are, are paying $50,000 a month for SEO optimization, and they yeah. think they can't be in the game. So I'm sure you've had that kind of conversation with some of your clients. Maybe you haven't. 
but I'm sure it's going to be coming in the future, which Hmm. is how do you convince them that it's still worth playing the game if they don't have a huge budget? Yeah, I, yes, I've gotten that question quite a bit. Um, You know, I think what I like to do, especially coming from academia, is just try to try to educate them as much as possible. Um, And so what I've been doing is uh, I've been doing these kind of like free Q&A, like SEO sessions, because I think there's a big gap in knowledge um, about SEO and how to kind of apply it to uh, your marketing. So I've been just doing these, I've been doing small groups or one-on-one sessions where I just like kind of demo one of the tools I use. Um, and really, and, and it's free. I, I kind of enjoy it. It gives me an excuse to talk to people. It gives me an excuse to meet new people. Um, and, uh, it arms people with, you know, the knowledge that to, to go out and apply, you know, this, this tool or this SE, this new SEO knowledge to their own, uh, marketing. Um, so that's that's kind of one avenue. the The other is, you know, a lot of these tools. Um, there there are a lot of free versions of these tools, um, keyword research tools um, that you can use to kind of find out, you know, what keywords you should optimize content for. Um, and so I think there are ways to kind of do this on a budget. It's just a matter of kind of like going out there and exploring um, for yourself. Uh, and the, one of the great things about SEO is there's so much content out there that you can do to, or that you can read to, to kind of educate yourself. Um, and so I think if you, if you take the time, if you take, you know, an hour a week or two hours a week to kind of like explore and, and, um, do some searching, you can really, you can really learn a lot. And I think it's, it's all, it all comes down to, you know, the curiosity about it. You know, for me, I, I wanted to start a blog for a long time and I was just like, Hmm, well, I want people to see my blog. So I, I went to Google like everyone does and said, how do I attract more traffic to my website? And, you know, one of the first articles that came up was about SEO and I was like, what is this SEO? And I just kind of dug in and, and started learning. Um, and that kind of sent me on this, on this journey. Um, so yeah. 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 It's, uh, for me, it's become a, a, a massive obsession. I, I, I do SEO research for like four hours every single night. It yeah. doesn't stop on weekends. It's every single night. When my partner goes to bed, I'm on my phone. <laughs> yeah. I'm laying down yeah. on the sofa watching Mad Men, not really watching it and just, you know, researching <laughs> SEO. I find it, like you said, it appeals a lot to people who love data and who love a good challenge, but also have a good gut instinct. Because to compete with the companies that are paying 50 grand a month, you have to use keywords that are perhaps not often used and you have to have mm-hmm. a good sense to know what keywords to optimize for so that, you know, you might not rank on the first page for the word Pluto for an outer yeah. space website, but you may, you might rank on the first page for, is there water on Pluto? Mm-hmm. You know? So there's yeah. certain things I think that people don't, who don't understand SEO don't necessarily know about that yeah. they can actually they can still play in the game they can use yeah. you know what they call long tail keywords do you want to do you, do you want to explain that a little bit to our listeners yeah yeah long so long tail keywords are like a fancy way of saying you know a string of you know three or four words together um and i think the what you touched on is is a great point you know that's that's where you can really even as a small brand you can really compete 
um, and, and get to those kind of number one, number two, number three positions. Um, and what those, what's great about those long tail keywords is, you know, there's intent behind that, you know, what your, your example that you gave, you know, is there water on Pluto? That's someone who's like deep into Pluto. There's like, they want to know the details of Pluto. They don't want to know, like, you know, what are the 12 planets? They want to know like all about Pluto. They want that deep information. So I think there are similar examples, you know, in, in science as well. I've had, I've had, I've talked to companies before where it's like, they want to rank for DNA. And it's like, right. think about what, you know, run through the mind of someone who's searching for DNA. What do they, what do they want? It could like, who is the person behind the computer searching DNA? So it could be like, any number of things. It could be like a middle schooler who's writing a, a science report on DNA. It could be, you know, your grandmother who wants to know more about DNA. Um, but the, the intent behind someone who's searching DNA is really difficult to pin down. Um, and so people see, you know, to get back to the data kind of part of SEO, people will, a lot of these tools can give you, you know, monthly search volumes for terms like DNA. And so people will see, you know, oh, well, there's, you know, a million people searching a month for DNA. I want, I want that audience to come to my website. Well, it's like, but if you're, they, they don't, they're not interested in your, they're not interested in the product you're selling, they're not interested in the service that you're providing. They just want information about DNA. Um, they don't, they don't really care. And they may not, you know, a middle schooler doesn't have, may not have the money to pay for your product or service. So it's, it's really, I think a lot of the long tail keyword kind of really makes you reflect and get to the core of like who your audience is. And, uh, and then from there kind of figuring out what, what are they searching for? What are the topics that they're interested in? Um, and then providing how, that content to them. Okay. And how do you, um, you, you, because again, you brought up something really brilliant, which is the target audience. Uh, I find that a lot of scientists forget about their target audience or they don't have one in place. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it, especially on social media tends to just go out to their colleagues but it doesn't reach the people that are trying to reach, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. How do you um, how do you inform your clients about their target audience? Do you help them find it, or do you expect your clients to provide you with that information? Yeah, I sort of expect them to supply me with that information, but it's it's often you know it's often a question that they may not have thought about. Um, so part, sometimes part of it is just like kind of being a mirror to them and saying like, well, who's your target audience? And then they go, Hmm. And then, you know, through the course of conversation, you kind of like drill down on that a little bit more. Um, and, you know, I think some of the projects that, that have been really successful, um, for both me and clients I've worked with is, you know, when you can talk to, the scientists who are kind of in the lab doing doing R and D, or talking to you know some some other internal people, not only the marketing people, but other people who like salespeople, for instance, who go out and are actually talking to the customer. You know, they have they have phenomenal insights sometimes, um, and they can often you know really like crack open projects or really get 
get you to the core of like what a customer cares about, what topics they care about, what they know, what they don't know, you know, that's, that's really like at the heart of, of a good marketing campaign, you know, understanding, um, really getting that deep understanding of, of your customer. Right. Do you sometimes have clients that don't take your advice at all? They just they, they say, okay, okay. And then they just run and do their own thing. Does that happen sometimes? Yeah, it, have, yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens quite a bit. Um, so, um, and it's unfortunate, but um, that's at the end of the day, you know, I, it's, it's their money and it's their brand. And ultimately, you know, I'm, I can be there as a consultant or as, you know, someone who has experience, but if they want to do what they, what they want to do, well, then that's, that's, that's their choice. Um, I run into this a lot with, uh, I've worked on like a couple of landing page projects. So like a landing page is, you know, it can be a, something that's very focused on achieving like a single goal. So you think about like your whole website and you want people to like land on your homepage and explore your services and your products, maybe check out your blog, like do a bunch of things. Whereas like a landing page is like the exact opposite. It's like you want someone to go there and fill out a form or buy a product or whatever. Um, and usually some of these brands will put together campaigns where they're running ads somewhere or um, they're doing paid search ads on, on Google and someone's going to click on that ad and they're going to hit this landing page. And the goal is to get them to buy something or fill out a form or learn more or, or whatever. But so that requires a lot of restraint, like creating this landing page where it's like you want to funnel people into this one action. Um, so you need like minimal copy on the page, you know, a core message, like in, in big font as the first thing they see a contact us button, like right there for someone to click. Um, and maybe a little additional information if someone's not ready to click yet, you know, so as they scroll down, they can get more information, but people, <laughs> the thing that makes people really uncomfortable is like not having their like website's main menu navigation and like the top right hand corner or like somewhere up there and that gives a user you know the perfect escape route it's like okay well i'm not ready to contact us so i'm gonna click this menu and and get out of here um and so it's 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 uh sometimes that's like a little frustrating when you know i recommend that you know you just have you know a, a funnel to get people to do this one action and they're like yeah but we need our main menu nav up there too yeah it's habits an and traditions can be uh can be a pain it can it can yeah. be a real pain because um i think it was, people are used to seeing something i always tell people that you have to go with your core strengths as a client you know like if you're an artist because i i i, I my my goal is to to service artists and, and scientists just like this podcast that's my that's mm -hmm. my my feet in two worlds so might as well go with yeah. it but i always tell especially artists you're an artist you're an artist if you're running a business you're an artist so mm -hmm. if you're a great painter even if you're selling cups you should have them you know, maybe painted, or you should have something in your copy or whatever that reflects who you are as an artist. Do you, um, with your own clients, do you find that you have to also reinforce their strengths and tell them to, to just be themselves or to be vulnerable if they're individuals or, you know? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I think that 
there's there's like a I don't know there's like an anti authenticity thing that like front that people put up when they're like at a big company or they're like a business person and I have to present this this um you know attitude of authority and trust and um and I I've encountered that yeah I've encountered that quite a bit and I think some of the most powerful marketing does really get at that like authenticity um and I think the problem with a lot of these these brands is they don't they don't quite know what their like internal culture is yet um and so without that um without that kind of like you know core culture that that really sums up who they are authentically it's it's it makes it really tough to like communicate to an external audience so i think i think like really trying to kind of like figure that out as as almost like a first step before you take the plunge into like uh kind of customer facing marketing is like really figuring out, you know, who, who do we want to be as a company? And, and is it, is it authentic? Is it, is it like, does it reflect the people who work here? Does it reflect, you know, our, our attitude towards our work? Um, so, yeah. Um, so I'm going to redirect the question to you. What makes no. you different from all the other marketers on the planet? Oh my God. Spot. <laughs> um, I like to, <laughs> I like to approach working with people as just like being friendly. I I just like to be friendly. I want to work with other people who are also friendly. Um, So I try to be positive and friendly. And I I think ultimately that's, that's what people are looking for when they're looking for a a freelancer or, or someone to write content or do SEO. Like they, they want, they want expertise and people who are, are nice to work with. Um, and so I really try to keep that in mind, even when um, the person I'm working with may not, may not have the same attitude. Um, and so I, I really just, I try to stay friendly. <laughs> uh, and that's and hard. I, I think what people yeah. don't realize is that that's hard because there's a lot of pressure, especially in marketing, to become a very, very, very highly successful, and b to just like oh, just create courses and sell those courses and make all your clients a carbon copy of each other. I think what you're doing is a very personal approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it takes uh, yeah, it takes a lot of effort um, sometimes for sure. And I, you know, just to get back to the question before, you know, I don't know if that's a a differentiator. I've met a lot of, you know, since I've launched my own business, I've, I've met a lot of other freelancers. I've networked with a lot of other freelancers and they're all pretty friendly. You know, there are some people out there who are like, Oh, I don't want to talk to you because you're a competitor technically. Um, but you know, I think the majority of people are, are pretty friendly. And, uh, you know, I think honestly, I think it would, it would hurt their business if, if they weren't. So, uh, it's nice. I think like there's a, there's a really good community of, of freelancers out there. So, yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that really sets you apart is your science background. I think you're one of them in a way that you can relate. Just like for me, I can relate to artists because I've sold my work online. I've done, I've done, you know, three Mm -hmm. years in Montreal and rose to the highest, highest ranks possible. Um, So when you've walked the walk, I think it's easier for clients to relate to you. Mm-hmm. 
That's a, that's a great point. And um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, you're, you're right on. And I think that, I think when people hear about my science background, they, they, that definitely does build the trust. It gives you like some immediate credibility um, and, you know, faith that, you know, okay, this, we're selling a technical product or a technical service, but you know, this, this guy can figure out how it works and figure out how to kind of message to our audience. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, you're an independent worker, which means that you've got to manage your time. You've got to manage your business. You've got to manage your schedule. You've got, uh, children, a wife, um, you know, you have responsibilities. How do you keep from becoming a workaholic? <laughs> oh man. Uh, I have not figured it out yet. Um, I, I think, um, I don't know. Uh, quite yet. You know, I, I think there's still that for me, there's a lot of stress over like kind of starting this new business. And um, much like I did in science, I, I kind of let that I turn that stress that like nervous energy into productivity. So I just pour all of that into my work. Um, but I think honestly, having having kids has has um, it's the best anti workaholic drug out there, because you can't like you, you just can't focus on work all the time. It's just not, it's not an option. Um, and so even if, you know, my kids were at home and I was on the computer, they'd be like, daddy, what are you doing? And then they'd start poking on the computer and I'd be like, all right, this is not, <laughs> this is a serious burden to uh, focus. And so in a way, some, sometimes it is a little annoying, but, but honestly, I, I, I think it's a, it's a blessing um, because I would, I think, I think I would much like I did in science, I would just burn out after a while. Um, so I think my kids are, are probably the best, the best anti-workaholic uh, thing, thing out there for sure. Yeah. For, for, for people who are, who are listening, what you don't know is that we're actually recording, we're, we're not recording video, but we are on video right now. And I'm looking at uh, Dr. Diner in, in his kid's bedroom uh, with a with sea creatures on the wall, so you can really tell that uh, it's it's amusing and it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And I completely agree. I think having little people around you must also um, give you a sense of uh, of play. Mm-hmm. Definitely, it it definitely does. And and just you you reminded me of the question you asked about authenticity. Like I think one of the silver silver linings to this pandemic thing and having everyone work from home is like you get a little snapshot through the webcam into like what their life is like or what the, <laughs> what kind of things kind of fill their life. Whereas you know before we'd we'd be in an office and it'd be it'd all be very professional, but. Um, but yes, kids, kids really do promote that play. Um, you know, my son is at the age where he's just like into building things out of Legos. And I love like I used to be so into Legos as a, as a kid. And um, so it's fun to like sit down and build stuff with him. Um, it's also been fun to like talk about science. You know, he's three years old. So he's like just kind of getting a sense of of the world now. And um, 
so we explained to him he he loves yogurt and we explained to him that like there's little little bacteria in there you know squirreling around and making your tummy feel good um and so it's it's cool to it's cool to explain that stuff to him and now every time he eats yogurt he talks about how they're yummy bacteria um <laughs> and it's just yeah it's just fun it's fun to i feel like you you really do it's cliche but you really do kind of rediscover the world when when you have kids Sure. And what about for your own decompression? What do you do? Like, are you somebody who goes out and surfs? Or are you somebody who who hikes? Are you? Uh, do you steal your son's Legos and play with them at, at two a.m. just to just to relax? Um, you know, uh, what's your what's your thing to decompress? Yeah, I you nailed it. Um, it must be California. Like, I, I I do like to surf. Um, I try to get out. You know, once or twice a, a week. It's it's tough because it takes a lot of time and time is at an all-time low now but um i i do like to surf and then the other the other thing i like to do is swim um I, i'm a big swimmer um and that's it's pretty recent actually i'd say in the past year i just started swimming a lot it's it's refreshing it really like it's a great kind of like way to clear your head um i'm i'm someone who's like pretty addicted to my phone um and my email and so like you can't can't have a phone in the pool or when you're out for a surf so um it's a great it's a great way to disconnect for a little bit for sure that's very true that's very true um so if you could work for any company any cause uh you know what would be kind of some of your dream marketing campaigns that you'd love to work on Oh, such a, that's such a great question. Um, I love, uh, you know, I've worked on a couple of like agriculture um, campaigns, people who make, you know, products and, and provide services for, for agricultural biology, which are, these are people who are, you know, engineering plants or engineering livestock or other animals um, to basically, you know, feed the world. Um, and it's, it's, incredible it's incredible what these people are helping companies do um and i just i i love i love that stuff and i think that's a real that's a real passion of mine and and i'd love to do more of it um so that the ag bio space i think is a really exciting one and one i'd love i'd love to work more in um the other real passion um is uh, a field called synthetic biology which really kind of takes like an engineering approach to biology. So engineering, you know, microbes or other living organisms to do, you know, new things that, you know, maybe chemical processes can't um, do. So it's a really, that's a really exciting field that um, I've worked a little bit in, but would love to do uh, more, more work in because, uh, and that's also like my research background as well in synthetic biology. So I just, yeah, I dig it. Very cool. And if a company said to you, "Hey, we really like you. Do you want to come and work for us?" Would you would you leave uh, independent work, or would you would you consider a full time job down the line? I I wouldn't honestly. I you know the month the month since I've launched my business has been stressful, but I I wouldn't give it up. Um, it's just I really I love being able to feel like I can be authentic when I'm on a call with a client. Um, not then that I don't kind of have to like fit myself into what a, a company's view of me or my boss's view of me. I can just kind of do my own thing. Um, I don't have to lie about like being able to do video. I can just be like, I don't know how to do that. 
<laughs> and just be be honest and authentic. And that I really I really value that. Um, and I also value the the flexibility. Um, it allows me to show up for my my kids when when they need, show up for my wife when they need. Um, it really it really enables that. So um, I don't know. Maybe in a year that answer will change, but but for now I, I really value my independence. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I can actually totally relate. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. Uh, listen, Dr. Ailey Diner, uh, thanks again for um, for joining me, for, for being vulnerable enough to just, you know, answer the questions as they come. I, I told you at the beginning of this interview that uh, I didn't have any prepared questions, that I were just going to let curiosity drive this interview. And I'm glad I did it that way because... Uh, I think we covered a lot of topics that are really important to science communication and to this new kind of, let's call it a niche, science marketing. So yeah. if people wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about what you do, uh, what's the best place for them to find you online? So they can go to uh, wordlab.com to check out my my business website, uh, spelled W-E-R-D-L-A-B.com. Um, and... Through there, you can shoot me a contact form and that'll go right to my email and I can get back to you that way. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, it should be pretty easy to, easy to find. I think there's only there's only one Ailey Diner on LinkedIn. Um, and then you can, uh, you can find me on Twitter as well. It's uh, at Ailey underscore Diner. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put a link for sure then. Okay, perfect. <laughs> anyway, yeah. thanks a lot. I really appreciate yeah. uh, you taking your time to, to answer my questions. Sure. Great to talk with you, Julie. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye.